Welcome back to my podcast, and thank you for listening. Before we get started, I just want to say that this next episode may have things that could upset certain people. Um, there's references to deviant sexual behavior, and uh, there's a little swearing. So if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, I just wanted to give you a heads up, okay? All right, great. Thanks. First, I want to thank you so much for your support of this podcast. The response has been unbelievable, and that means everything. This podcast is available on most major hosting platforms, as well as my website, raygricar.com. When you visit my website, you'll find more information on this case, as well as excerpts from the actual case file. This is a one-time membership fee for access, which I charge to offset the cost of producing this podcast. A portion of all the proceeds I receive will go to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Please consider joining the growing list of members to help support the team of professionals that put this all together. Who was Ray Gricar? If you're not familiar with this case, he was born and raised in Ohio. His family had emigrated originally from Slovenia. He was raised a Catholic. He went to a prestigious prep school and then on to Case Western University and got his Juris Doctor in Law. He stayed in Ohio and worked as a prosecutor for Cuyahoga County, which encompasses the Cleveland area, until 1979. Then he left Ohio and moved to Center County, Pennsylvania, because his then-wife, Barbara, had taken a position at Penn State University in Center County. Now, prior to the move, Ray Gricar had cut his teeth on some very high-profile murder cases in Cleveland. So I wonder what it was like for him to leave that kind of action and come to such a rural and relatively isolated place like Center County, Pennsylvania. You know, I lived there for 10 years in State College, and there was a saying among us that the whole area was equally inaccessible from all points. Three hours to Philly, three hours to Pittsburgh, four hours to New York City. So isolated. Now, he and his wife also had a daughter. They adopted her as a baby, and they named her Laura. Once they all got to Center County, Mr. Grickar essentially became a house husband while his wife began her position at Penn State University. Do you think that must have been a huge change for him? One minute he was helping put hardened criminals away, and the next minute he was chasing a toddler around. Anyway, it didn't take long for the word to spread that this hot-shot prosecutor out of Cleveland was living in the area. And many of the locals, meaning judges and attorneys, they wanted to meet Grikar. So that was arranged over a few dinner parties. One of those parties was at a now-retired judge's house. He told me that Grikar turned up that night wearing a 60s-style Nehru jacket and pants to match. He said he looked like a hippie. He was even wearing puka beads, as the judge told me. He thought the whole thing was so strange, nobody made any comments about his outfit. But the judge said he never saw him dressed like that again, and I wondered what that was all about. Was Grikar sending a message to the judge and to the others that, you don't intimidate me, I don't care who you are, I'm not one of you? 
But when I asked the judge, what do you think happened to Ray Grecar? He never hesitated in his answer. Homicide. And he refused to elaborate no matter how many questions I asked after that. He just ended the meeting and ushered me out of the Center County Courthouse, where we had been meeting in his former chambers. Anyway, Nehru jacket and puka beads aside, Grecar joined the office of district attorney, which was a part-time position then. But it didn't take him long to start lobbying for the district attorney's office to become a full-time position. Current and former district attorneys that knew him told me he was very shrewd navigating political waters around those who really rejected the idea of the Center County DA being a full-time position. But they also agreed that there was a real need for the office to be full-time. Brickar thought it was obvious. It was a huge university with a student population there, in the tens of thousands, and that sat within a town with a population that was around 30,000 people. And all of this was just a stone's throw away from Route 80, the east-west corridor of the United States. It's also an artery for drug trade and child trafficking, among other things. I mean, when Grecar showed up in Center County in 1979, the cocaine trade alone would have been enough to keep several DAs busy. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Who was minding the mint before Ray Grecar got to Center County? It didn't take him long to find out who the power brokers were in the county. Penn State University, Nittany Lion Football, and a relatively new charity that was started for at-risk youth named The Second Mile, which was founded by one of the best defensive coordinators in college football, Jerry Sandusky. Grikar quickly learned that in the Penn State community, the Second Mile charity was already becoming a huge status symbol. Serving on its board, attending its fundraising events, donating time or money to it, these were a must for anyone seeking to climb the Center County business and social ladder. And the Second Mile's reach was wide. The organization was intimately tied up with Penn State and its highly lucrative football franchise. Joe Paterno, the deceased legendary Nittany Lions head coach, was a founding member of the Second Mile charity. Penn State University officials, coaching staff and their wives, and local luminaries, they all rotated through the board of the Second Mile. And Ray Grecar had a front row seat to all of it. He was eventually elected to four terms as district attorney. My sources told me he never had his eye on a judgeship, the way some DAs used the office as a stepping stone. No, he was a career prosecutor. He liked putting the bad guys away. Every attorney and district attorney that I talked to for this podcast all said the same thing. Ray didn't care who you were. If you broke the law in his county, you were going down for it. Of the dozens and dozens of people I spoke to in my reporting for this, those who knew him, they all said they liked him. But they also said the same thing, all independent of one another. They said, but I really didn't know him. So why does that matter? Well, let me unpack this a little. Ray Grecar was a very private person, but he had to be. As other district attorneys told me, the job isolates you. The odds were that every time Grecar was out in his county, someone might recognize him. 
It might be the woman at the checkout line in the grocery store that smiled at him. She could end up as a defendant in his court someday. He was known for not making small talk. I think he was a little like an elusive celebrity, and he was certainly smart enough to know that he didn't want to get chummy or blur boundaries with the power brokers and luminaries in the county. Other people that were associated with Ray Grigar told me he was always kind and respectful. Everyone said he was one of the good guys and that he hated injustice. And that one of his missions in life was to make the lives of abused women and children better. When he went missing, the Center County Women's Resource Center, as it was called then, put up a rather large reward for anyone that could provide information that would lead to him being found. That reward went unclaimed. But of all the groups in that area, they were the ones who stepped up and offered something. As a few of those members told me, he also fought hard for those whose voices had been extinguished through violence, as in the case of the young woman who was strangled to death by a truck driver. This is one of two examples that I'm going to tell you about that I really think sums up how Ray Grigar was as a prosecutor. This is a case that he prosecuted, and the second example is a case that he did not prosecute. But here's the first one. The murder of the 17-year-old woman happened several miles from his courthouse. Her body had been dumped along the road in a snowbank. He told his colleagues that even if she was only found just inches inside of his county, he was going to fight for her killer to be brought to justice. He even reenacted the strangulation in front of the jury so there would be no mistake in their mind how heinous this crime was. The people that were there in the courtroom that day watching him work described the scene to me like this. Grigar got out of his chair and he picked up a three-foot-length yellow nylon rope that he had on the table in front of him. He walked to the front of the juror's box and he looked at all of them sitting there. And then he knelt to the floor and he got on top of a female dummy that had been placed on the floor before the jurors. He sat down on its chest and he straddled its body like he was on a saddle. Then he took the rope and he slid it under the neck of the dummy and he tied the rope tighter and tighter and he said, this is how the defendant strangled her. And then he got up and he walked back over to the prosecution's table. And he picked up a small timer and he turned to the juror and he said, it takes about four minutes to kill a person by strangulation. Then he put the timer on the table and he pressed a few buttons and it began counting backwards. The numerals lit up in red as they blinked away the seconds. I was told the effect was mesmerizing. Grigar stayed silent the whole time and after four minutes the timer went off and then he said, that's a long time to change your mind. In other words, the defendant had plenty of time to stop the strangulation, but he did not. Grigar's point had been made with some theater, a recessa Annie dummy, and a $20 timer. And with that, he sealed the murderer's conviction. I think the second example that illustrates what kind of a prosecutor Ray Grigar was was for a case that he never charged. That's when he did not bring charges against the pedophile football coach Jerry Sandusky in 1998. That was the year a mother of a boy 
who was part of Jerry Sandusky's Second Mile group, called a local state college psychologist because when her 11-year-old son came home one night after spending time with Sandusky, she noticed his hair was wet. He told her that he and Sandusky had worked out on the campus of Penn State University, and afterwards, Sandusky insisted that they take a shower together at the facility. The mother said her son was very uncomfortable and that he tried to pick a shower that was a distance from Sandusky. But Sandusky told the boy he had already warmed up the water at his shower and the boy should join him there. She relayed all of this information to the psychologist and that person told her to call the Penn State University Police Department immediately, which the mother did. Then the psychologist interviewed the boy. Now at the time, a man named Ron Schreffler was chief of police at the Penn State Police Department. He told Ray Grikar about what had been reported to him. So Grikar arranged for another detective, Ralph Ralston, from the State College Police Department to go with Schreffler to the home of the boy. Grikar told them to have the mother invite Jerry Sandusky to her home so she could ask him about the shower incident. Now, what Sandusky didn't know was that Grikar told Schreffler and Ralston to be hidden out of sight inside the home so that they could observe the interaction with Sandusky and the mother. Two meetings for this purpose were set up on May 15th and May 19th of 1998. Both of these meetings were orchestrated by Ray Grikar. Officer Schreffler consulted with Grikar and came up with scripted questions for the mother that were leading questions intended to get Sandusky to incriminate himself. But as she questioned him, Sandusky's answers were ambiguous and vague at best. For instance, at the first meeting, the boy's mother confronted him about how showering with her son made her son feel uncomfortable. Sandusky's response was that he had showered with other boys and it didn't seem to be a problem, but he promised he would not shower with her son again. At the second meeting a few days later, Sandusky listened to the mother's complaints and then said, I would ask for your forgiveness, but I know you won't give it to me. I wish I were dead. All of this was reported back to Grikar, and so he consulted a person from the Pennsylvania State Department of Public Welfare. This person interviewed Sandusky and reported back to Grikar that he did not feel any crime had been committed. Then Grikar called in a consultant for Center County Children and Youth Services. They interviewed the boy and said that his story had stayed consistent, but they thought that there were too many gray areas, as they called it. Grikar was getting information that was not strengthening a case against Sandusky from the state and the county, and if the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare didn't indicate a charge of abuse, then he knew his case would never hold water. And because the Second Mile charity was so intertwined with Penn State University and the local football program, he knew he had to have much more to make a case. Sandusky's position at Penn State University was as solid as ever in 1998 when the mother took her complaints about the attention he was giving her son to the psychologist. And Grikar was always able to grasp the big picture. 
If this was true, then a rock star of a coach was molesting boys on the property of one of the biggest universities in the country, specifically in the football training building of the storied Penn State Nittany Lions. Grikar knew this would never just come down to one man. And we know now how true that was. A district attorney who knew Ray Grikar told me that Grikar said to him one time, if you're gonna take somebody down, maybe an institution where a crime or crimes are being committed, you had to have what he called the shot through the heart of the wild boar to bring charges that would be solid with no gray areas, as he called them. And Grikar simply did not have that shot in 1998. But do you think he forgot about Mr. Zandusky and the showering incident? I asked a former prosecutor who was a longtime colleague and peer of Mr. Grikar what he thought. He told me that he was having lunch with Grikar in 2004 at a restaurant in State College, just across the street from the main entrance to Penn State University. He and Grikar met for lunch to discuss, among other things, the sentencing in a case that involved a defendant's actions over their two respective jurisdictions. After lunch, he said that he and Grikar were a few blocks away from the restaurant. When Grikar pointed out a man who was crossing College Avenue, not far from the restaurant, and Grikar said, do you see that guy walking across the street up there? Well, that's Jerry Sandusky, the coach. He's a goddamn pedophile and I'm going to put him away if it's the last thing I do. This conversation took place in the fall of 2004, about six months before Ray Grigar went missing. So what do we do with that information? The person that told me this also said they did not come forward after Grigar went missing with this snippet of conversation because he said he knew how tepid, as he called it, was the response by Tom Corbett into Grikar's disappearance. Tom Corbett was the Attorney General of Pennsylvania when Ray Grikar went missing. In fact, just a few weeks before Grikar disappeared, Corbett held a joint press conference with Grikar to announce a big drug bust. My source said that he thought Corbett didn't even slow walk an investigation into one of his own missing. He said that Corbett never really did an investigation from the very beginning. And another source told me to say that Tom Corbett even slow walked an investigation into Ray Grigar's disappearance would be giving Tom Corbett too much credit. He further went on to state that in a certain political circle called the camp, think of those people as sort of lieutenants of Mr. Corbett, that he, Corbett, was already laying the groundwork for a campaign for governor when he was attorney general of Pennsylvania. And it was known among those in the camp that Corbett had his eye on the governorship of Pennsylvania, which happened in 2011. He served one four-year term. And you know, also by 2011, Corbett 
had already taken in thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from some of Jerry Sandusky's Second Mile Charity board members. Even during the three-year-long grand jury investigation into Jerry Sandusky, then Governor Corbett approved a grant for the Second Mile. Knowing how much Ray Gricar cared about the plight of abused women and children, it must have been hard on him not being able to bring charges against that monster, Jerry Sandusky. You know, charges that would stick. But the real question is, did Ray Gricar forget? What was one of the clues that led me to believe Ray Gricar was working on his own to build a case against Jerry Sandusky, the Second Mile, and Penn State University right up until the time he disappeared? Well, I discovered more than a few things over the course of my reporting. And at first, none of them lined up. But over time, a picture began to emerge. Here was one of them. Ray Gricar's county-issued laptop was reported to be missing from his home in Belfont after his disappearance. One of the first things I decided to ask about when I started reporting on this case was if he ever traveled with his laptop or did he use it exclusively at the courthouse, only taking it as far as his home, maybe, to work after hours, something like that. Three different sources, and one of them was a family member, told me that, yes, he did take his laptop with him, and specifically, they knew he had taken his laptop with him when he went to Vermont for vacation. Now, they didn't know how many times he had taken it to Vermont, but I asked them if he knew if he ever took his laptop with him when he went to the beach or when he went to visit his daughter on the West Coast. But they all said that they only knew of him ever taking his laptop to Vermont. So I wondered, why just Vermont? After I made a copy of the case file on his disappearance, I saw on Ray Gricar's calendars and his email correspondence that he had traveled to Vermont for a week in 2004. And as I mentioned in an earlier episode, he also had a trip planned to Vermont for a week in October, but that was to take place months after he disappeared. So why was Gricar taking his laptop to Vermont? Well, none of us will ever know because the hard drive to that laptop was so badly damaged from being submerged in the Susquehanna River. Gricar presumably had the laptop with him the day he vanished, and we can only speculate what was on that hard drive. But digging further into what information the case file had, I noticed when I studied his banking records that he bought gas near the town of Barnard in Vermont on a few occasions the year before he disappeared. Barnard, Vermont, is the quintessential small, picturesque New England town, and it draws tourists year-round. But you know what else it is? It's also the town where Louis Free had a seasonal home up to and even after Gricar's disappearance. Yes, that Louis Free, the former director of the FBI 
and the author of the scathing Free Report that was done about how Penn State University mishandled the sex abuse case involving Jerry Sandusky. As a result of the Free Report, Penn State University, and particularly its storied football program, was essentially brought to its knees. It was inside the Free Report that the public first learned about the 1998 investigation on Jerry Sandusky. Free stated in the report, quote, the district attorney at the time of the 1998 incident has been missing for several years and has been declared dead, unquote. I have a link to the free report on my website at raygricar.com. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Louis Free's report was damning to Penn State University. They were taken completely by surprise when the $6 million plus dollars they paid to have this report done ended up essentially shredding them. I wonder, did Louis Free already know about the 1998 investigation that Ray Grikar had done into Jerry Sandusky? And I want to put a pin in something right now for those who are unfamiliar with the Free Report. Louis Free had no subpoena power to force anyone to talk to him or to turn over any documents. No subpoena power whatsoever. Was Ray Grigar meeting Louis Free in Vermont the year before his disappearance to discuss his suspicions and findings about Sandusky, the Second Mile, and Penn State University? Grigar's desktop calendar shows a trip to Vermont in 2004 in October. Do you think it's possible that Grigar could have met with Louis Free then? They were both attorneys. They're both seasoned prosecutors. Both men had law enforcement backgrounds, although that would be an understatement in Free's case. But rest assured, Ray Grigar knew who Louis Free was in 2004. And if you were Ray Grigar and you were building a case against a pedophile, you knew that pedophiles do not stop until they're stopped. He knew a fire was raging out of control, and it was going on behind the shield of an institution and its luminaries. That certainly was evident when Penn State and its Board of Trustees approved the sale of a parcel of land to the Second Mile in 2001. Vice President of the University, Gary Schultz, issued a press release in which, according to the Free Report, quote, he praised Sandusky for his work with the Second Mile, unquote. All of this coming not only after the 1998 shower incident, but also after another incident involving Sandusky was reported in 2001. As stated in the Free Report, these incidents were not brought up to the Board of Trustees at Penn State nor were the risks created by a public association with Sandusky when the land transaction was discussed. I wonder how it made Mr. Grigar feel when he found out that the university had made that deal only three years after he had opened the case and then closed it on Jerry Sandusky. He knew he couldn't make the case in 98 due to lack of clear evidence 
and no support from the state agency that investigated. And he knew there was a pedophile on the loose, and a high-profile one at that, with a university and charity propping this monster up somehow I'll wager Ray Grikar had it all figured out before we did. But did he meet with Louis Free in Vermont? Far away from any eyes in Center County, Pennsylvania, so that he could discuss his findings with Mr. Free? Is it really so hard to imagine that by 2005, Grikar may have finally had the drop on Jerry Sandusky and perhaps others? And who better to trust with your findings, or perhaps be able to rely on for information, than the former director of the FBI? If I were Grikar, I would have been beating a very quiet path to Free's door in Vermont for help. Grikar may have figured out by then that this went beyond one person, one charity, one university, so many children. Do you know that at one point, the second mile served about 100,000 children? And if you were running in the right circles, you knew that Jerry Sandusky had some of those children available for rape. So did Grikar reach out to Louis Free in Vermont? And if so, how much do you think he would have told him? If they met, doesn't it stand to reason that Grikar would have shared whatever he had? I mean, where else was Grikar going to go with any of this? He would have been crucified if he couldn't make criminal charges stick the second time he opened the case. If he was ever going to charge again, he had to have a lot more evidence. He couldn't afford to make any mistakes, and most certainly, he could not take the chance of talking to just anyone about this, not even his own assistant district attorneys or if he was investigating and told them. They never talked about it at all. And the few that would talk to me off the record said they didn't want to discuss things because they wanted to live. Now, here's a point that I want you to put a pin in. According to the Free Report, Section 4, documents were held in Vice President Schultz's office at Penn State, which, quote, had been concealed from the Special Investigative Council, unquote. That was Free and his people, the Special Investigative Council, as they were called. So how did Louis Free know that these documents existed? I mean, why ask for those particular documents? You know, sometimes it's not the answer, but the question, right? Mr. Schultz would not meet with the Special Investigative Council, so Louis Free did not learn about those documents from Schultz directly. Remember, Free had no subpoena power during his investigation. Still, the question is, how did Louis Free know about the existence of these particular documents? Is it because he had prior knowledge of them? Or did he learn about them organically through the course of the investigation? These notes had Schultz's own handwritten notes from 1998 that said, quote, 
is this opening of Pandora's box and also a note that said, quote, other children, unquote. Just a few words. But you know something? Those were the very words that turned the tide in the case against Graham Spanier, Gary Schultz, Tim Curley, and Joe Paterno in the Sandusky sex abuse case when it all came to light in 2011, six years after Ray Gricar disappeared. So is it such a stretch to think that Ray Gricar could have been reaching out to Louis Free on his various trips to Vermont? I tried to get Mr. Free to comment on these things, but his office did not return repeated calls. Do you think the hard drive that languishes in a box at the Rockview barracks of the Pennsylvania State Police holds the key to what Ray Gricar was doing the day he vanished? Have I given you a better understanding of who Ray Gricar was as a man and as a prosecutor? His brilliance and character could be found in cases he prosecuted and even the ones he didn't. You know how the old saying goes, sometimes the best deal you make is the one you walk away from. And Ray Gricar definitely walked away in 1998 when it was a question of charging or not charging Jerry Sandusky. But do you really think he forgot? He knew Sandusky was dirty and he also knew Sandusky was being propped up and protected. And for what? Did Ray Gricar quietly and methodically circle back? Had he finally made the case against Jerry Sandusky, the second mile, and Penn State University, and perhaps others at the time of his disappearance? And had he finally uncovered what he needed to take the shot through the heart of the wild boar, or in this case, the wild Nittany lion? Next time on Final Argument, The Disappearance of District Attorney Ray Gricar, I'm going to tell you about the women in his life and the ones he was seen with just before he vanished. Why didn't any of them ever come forward after he disappeared? And did one of those women make a mistake that may have cost Gricar his life? <laughs> 